Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Okay, great. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Karen Miller, and I'm on staff here at COV, and Mike is my wonderful husband over there. Anyway, how are we all doing this morning? Woo, all right, pretty good. Nice. All right, and I was in the front row. I didn't see how many of you had Thursday off. Okay, a few people. Anyone have Thursday and Friday off? few of us. Okay, I did. It was very nice. All right, and my last question, do we have any veterans in the crowd? Okay, I know we have some in our congregation. They are out of town today, but um, very thankful for their service. All right, well, I don't know about you, but I actually love to read about well-known or less-known heroes in wars and specifically World War II, or right now I'm reading a book about World War I. Anyway, recently I read a story about a woman named Virginia Hall, and she became part of the British intelligence organization and then worked undercover for the French resistance during World War II. She was this very tall woman with a wooden leg, so not your obvious choice for a spy who's working undercover, right? But she actually created these vast networks of spies throughout France. And then those groups helped set up resistance fighters who were doing bombing bridges and disrupting German supply lines and troops and different things like that. She really was a linchpin for the resistance at that time. And her face was covered on wanted posters. And there was a bounty on her head and Virginia refused order after order to evacuate. She wanted to be in the center of the action. And I love stories where people see injustice and oppression, and they're willing to put their lives on the line to bring freedom and justice. So this morning, guess what? We're going to talk about that very thing. The title of my sermon this morning is Injustice. And our passage, as you just heard, is John 19, 1 through 16. All right, so to begin, I want us to think a little bit about justice itself. When you think about justice, what comes to mind? Think about that, justice, what goes on. Uh, you may think about our court systems, right, where we have judges and juries and they pass down verdicts of guilt or innocence. You may think of our political system, right, where they're creating laws to hopefully build a just society. And you may think about our right to challenge those systems through freedom of speech and protest. And we see a lot of that right now. You can even go to Kaiser, right, and they're protesting and on strike. Um, and lastly, though, you may think about justice on a more personal level. Am I being treated fairly? Am I getting what I deserve? And are you treating me fairly? Well, this week I was texting my stepsister, who lives in the Central Valley. And she has this debilitating growth on the base of her neck. Um, she's had it for years, and it causes constant pain, and often days where she just literally can't do anything. Her husband has multiple myeloma, and it's in its advanced stages. It's a type of blood cancer, if you don't know. They are isolated from family due to COVID and his reduced immune system. And it's hard to look at her life and feel like she's been dealt a fair hand. We can think about justice in that way. Was that fair? And maybe you know someone like that. 
So this morning, though, we're going to see how Jesus dealt with injustice, and then we're going to see God's plan for bringing about justice in our own lives. Super cool. I'm excited. All right. Uh, Before we dive into our passage that we just heard, I do want to go back and remind us of where we are in the historical narrative. In John 18, we learn that Jesus was arrested in the garden with a detachment of soldiers. Ruth told us 200 to 600 men carrying torches and weapons. There was no charge against Jesus at that time, but Jesus willingly went. Take me, not them, he said. And of course, Peter, right? Peter wanted to fight. He had his sword, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? They first brought Jesus to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest at the time, and then they brought him to Caiaphas himself. And then, ultimately, uh, last week we heard about the first part of Jesus' encounter with Pilate, who was the governor of the region under Rome. All right, so Mike did a great job unpacking that interaction, and uh, we knew last week Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews. And Jesus said he had a kingdom, but it was not of this world. And then Jesus tells Pilate that he came to testify to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? But really, Pilate, we learn, was not interested in the truth. And we will discover today he was not interested in justice either. All right, so wanting to appease the crowd, Pilate's hoping, right, that they'll pick Jesus. He really doesn't want to deal with Jesus, right? They get to release one prisoner at the Passover, And they pass over Jesus and release Barabbas instead. Womp, womp. Very sad. All right. This is where we pick up our narrative today. John 19, 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Now, Roman flogging was done with a leather whip with bits of metal at the ends. And such flogging often killed a person. And after the scourging, the soldiers essentially conducted a mock coronation. The crown of thorns was in place of a regal crown, and the imperial purple was a royal color. And instead of the traditional, Hail Caesar! traditionally shouted in homage to an approaching emperor, they repeatedly mocked, Hail, King of the Jews. Now Jesus, in Matthew 20, 18 through 19, already foretold that this would happen. That was interesting to me. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And not only did Jesus predict this was going to happen, but Isaiah the prophet hundreds of years earlier also said this. This is Isaiah 56 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. 
Why does Jesus endure this kind of injustice and humiliation? We know he didn't have to do that. But first of all, he knows that Rome, Pilate, and the soldiers do not have the last word. God has the last word, and he will vindicate Jesus in the end. And then from Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, it says, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, him being Jesus, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Why did Jesus endure this kind of injustice and humiliation? Because Jesus was the only one who lived a perfect life and was without sin. He loved us, he loved the Father, and he willingly took on our punishment. He took our punishment, and we get his righteousness. Does that seem fair to you? So, I don't know about you, if you've ever experienced a time where someone stepped in for you and endured harsh treatment on your behalf. But I have. I was at another church doing ministry when a very broken and angry lady announced at a women's event uh, that she would be leading women's ministries. And just kind of self-appointed, and I stood there kind of shocked, it's like, what? <laughs> what just happened here? So I was on staff at the time. I'm the only staff person present, and so I felt a need to step in. And I just said, you know, you can't really self-appoint yourself a leader of a ministry. You really need to be asked by a pastor. And what followed to me was equally shocking. She was super angry. She wrote angry emails. She tried to discredit my character. She talked badly to, be, to other people about me. Now, our lead pastor was on sabbatical at the time, and our very own Tim Riley was acting lead pastor. And I will never forget what he did. He stepped into that situation. He endured a good deal of her abusive talk and took on some of the pain intended for me. She was unwilling to follow Matthew 18 and left that church. But because Tim was willing to step in on my behalf, it is one of the many reasons that I trust him, and I trust that he will always work to protect the church, even when it's hard or costly, and I see him do that again and again. But how much more, then, should we trust Jesus, who stepped in, endured the punishment we deserve so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous? The Gentiles mocked. Jesus is king. But we trust Jesus is king. What he suffered was for our well-being, our healing. And that is someone worth bowing a knee to. That is someone worth following. So I want to ask you, where are you struggling to trust Jesus? Maybe there's an area of your life that is causing fear or anxiety. Maybe there's an area of your life where it's hard to give up control. But consider what he's done on your behalf and remember that he is both loving and trustworthy. Verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Here's the man. 
As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now remember that the flogging and the mock coronation was done inside the palace walls. The Jews were outside. They couldn't go inside because that would make them unclean for the Passover. Um, So the next time Jesus was seen by the crowd, it was most likely this horrific image. He had been savagely beaten and openly degraded by the Romans. Most commentators agree Pilate was not assigning any guilt to Jesus in those actions. Twice in these verses he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Instead, he's hoping the crowd will be satisfied. Politically, it was very interesting to read about this, Pilate could not afford a Jewish uprising. He was on very thin ice with the emperor Tiberius, and a revolt would take Pilate out of power as the governor over the region. His action to flog and mock Jesus is based not on justice, but on a desire to placate the crowd and really to keep his position of power. And sadly, sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we want to give up on Jesus because we don't want our lives to be drastically changed. But the religious leaders, they're not satisfied with the mocking or the flogging. They want Jesus executed. And for a third time, Pilate finds no basis for a charge against him. Verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Because he claimed to be the son of God. Finally, the religious leaders bring a charge against Jesus. He claimed to be the son of God. And there's lots of places where that claim is laid, but we're going to look at just one, John 5, 18. It says, For this reason, therefore, the, kings were seek- the Jews sorry, were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, to a Jew, this was a very serious charge. According to the law, and you can see Leviticus 24.16, the charge of blasphemy called for death if it could be proven. To a Roman, and Pilate in particular, however, many of the Roman gods appeared in human form. Percy Jackson, series anybody? Anyway, and Caesar also was called the son of God. An inscription that they, you know, the historical artifact that referenced Tiberius said, Emperor Tiberius Caesar, New Augustus, son of God, Zeus, the Liberator. Claiming to be the son of God would be expected of the emperor, but not expected of a man not in power. So if Jesus' claims were false, then under Jewish law, he would be deserving of death. However, if Jesus was and is the Son of God, that changes everything. For the religious leaders of the time, if Jesus was the Son of God, then Jesus had authority over them, and they would have to submit to him. They would have to give up their self-righteous legalism and be more about things like care and grace and mercy. And for the Romans, if Jesus was a true Son of God, that made him greater than Caesar and a possible threat to the Roman Empire. But what about us? 
I want you to think about this. What if Jesus were just a good man, an example to follow, a wise teacher, a prophet, and even maybe a miracle worker, as other religions claim him to be, but not the Son of God? Okay, think about what would change. All right, here's what would change. If he were not the Son of God, then he did not and does not have authority to forgive sins, because God alone can forgive sins. He didn't conquer sin and death. There's no promised Holy Spirit. There's no substitutionary death where Jesus died for our sins. We still face judgment outside of Christ's work and grace. That ought to be terrifying. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then he can't answer prayer or intervene on our, in our lives. There's no personal relationship with Jesus. If he's not the Son of God, then we could have a personal relationship with him as much as we could Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln, someone like that, right? And there's no eternal life. Let that sink in. What a depressing life that would be. And yet most people don't think Jesus is the Son of God, and they're outside of all those blessings. That ought to break our hearts. So I want to ask you, do you live as though Jesus was just a good person, a role model, an inspiration, someone to emulate? Or do you live as though he is your Lord and Savior, who forgives your every sin, who's conquered sin and death, who wants to be in a relationship, and who is powerful to intervene in the hard and broken places of your life? How might you live differently, or even pray differently, remembering that Jesus is the Son of God? And how might you hunger to share Jesus with others, knowing the difference he could make in their lives for the better? Think about that. So when Pilate hears the charge against Jesus, his claim to be the Son of God, here's what he says. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. This, this injustice, this cruelty, this cross, it's all part of the plan. Ironically, it is in fact God's plan to turn injustice on its head to bring justice. God is still in control and in charge, even if we don't get it at the time. There's these great verses in Isaiah 42. It's the first of what are called the servant songs that describe the coming of the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus. Isaiah 42, starting with verse 1, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Okay, unlike the modern day political leaders who loudly lobby their causes, or the protesters shouting in the streets, unlike harsh rulers who condemn those who are broken or weak or sinful, Jesus has a different kind of justice plan. 
First and foremost, he will bring forth justice by essentially saying, you, we, are all guilty. We do deserve punishment. God is just, and there must be consequences for your sin and wrongdoing, my sin and wrongdoing. But I'll do it. I'll take your chastisement, the mocking, the insults, and even death, and you'll be set free. You'll be declared righteous. What kind of judge does that? What kind of king does that? What kind of God does that? Jesus brings justice by taking the punishment we deserve. That ought to cause us to erupt in worship and praise. But even though we intellectually know this very important aspect of the gospel, emotionally, we can get angry or resentful of God if he allows things in our lives that we don't like, right? We just would prefer, you know, plan B. But here's what Jesus Christ is saying. If God gives anyone the power to do something bad to you, serve, love, follow Jesus because all it will do in the end is accomplish the very opposite of what the person wants to do. Real power is service. Follow him, Tim Keller. But there is more to Jesus' justice plan, and it is more countercultural than we would like. In fact, it's so countercultural, it often doesn't make sense to our modern minds. 1 Peter 2 18 through 19. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience before God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So this part of Jesus' justice plan often doesn't make sense to us. We think, especially right now, I don't deserve to be treated like this. I don't want to be a doormat and be walked all over. No way am I going to put up with this. We may think I'm giving and giving in this relationship, and I am not getting anything back. It doesn't feel right. But Paul is telling us here that we are supposed to follow Jesus' example. We are not supposed to punch back, as Tim mentioned a couple of weeks ago. We are not supposed to harshly criticize. That's actually what revile means. We are not supposed to threaten or retaliate, but rather patiently endure. As Tim said, this kind of patient endurance requires supernatural, spirit-prompted self-control. 
Now, are there times we walk away? Did Jesus ever walk away from a hostile crowd? He did. So there is time and place for that, but I think most often we're too quick to walk away. God calls us to patiently endure a lot of things we wouldn't naturally want to do. So why do we do this? And maybe the better question is how. So first, the why. We can see that Jesus enduring the mocking and the scourging and the eventual death accomplished something amazing, our salvation. That's a huge deal. And we trust that God will turn our unjust suffering into something good. See Romans 8, 28. So when I was in my late twini, tween, the tweens, teens, uh, I believed in Jesus but wasn't walking with Jesus, if that makes sense. Uh, but my sister was. She went to church multiple times a week, and she was really all about her faith. And I mocked her often. I really, I called her my religious fanatic sister, and I was a pretty difficult, self-absorbed person at the time, and how she put up with me, I have no idea. All right, but here's the thing. She never stopped praying for me. She never stopped loving me. And I don't have time to tell you the full story, but I am certain, I am certain her prayers are loving me in spite of myself. Her joy in the Lord, which was very authentic, her patient endurance over time brought me back to Christ. So that leads to my second point. Jesus calls us to follow his example and endure unjust suffering. So here's a question. Who is annoying you? Who is making your life difficult? Who is that heavenly sandpaper or EGR? And I want to challenge you to ask God to help you patiently endure that person. Keep praying for that person. And even ask God to help you. <coughs> Love that person. <laughs> Sorry, I have asthma, so we'll see if I can keep going. If not, the sermon will be shorter than expected. All right, third point. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Genesis 37 through 50, we read about a man named Joseph. All right, when you think of Joseph, what comes to mind? Talk to me. Then I don't have to talk for a second. What do we got? Okay? Anything else? Okay, good. All right, he's got this colored coat, right? We think about that. Now, Jesus, as a young man, was prideful. So his jealous brothers plotted to kill him. And ended up selling him into slavery in Egypt. All right. So as a slave, he was falsely accused and sent to prison. He endured prison for years. And God was with Joseph during that time. Right? And God gave Joseph a wise and prophetic gift. And using that gift, Joseph was delivered from jail and appointed second in command over all of Egypt. When his brothers showed up starving and in need of food... Joseph was in a position of power. 
he could have harmed them. He could have taken revenge. He could have put them in jail. He could have killed them. But you know what he did instead? He fed them. And he saved them. And he brought them down to Egypt and cared for them. And in Genesis 50, 20, we read Joseph's conclusion. What you intended for harm, God intended for good for the saving of many lives. Joseph overcome, came, sorry, evil with good. And God's justice often looks like mercy. So that's my third point. Leave room for God to bring justice, overcome evil with good. All right, one last point from Isaiah 56, 58, starting with verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And here's our last point in Jesus' justice plan is this. Join Jesus in caring for the oppressed. If you're not sure how Jesus did this, read through one of the Gospels and look for the ways that Jesus cared for people, especially the marginalized and the oppressed. All right, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So here it is, ironically, at the end of Jesus' trial, the Jews put Pilate on trial instead, imply, or maybe even threaten that Pilate might be a traitor. A governor opposing Caesar would be impeached, and Pilate would end. So how does Pilate respond to that? Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So Pilate sat down on the judgment seat to finally render a verdict. History described Pilate as weak, unwilling to provide justice to Jesus, whom he found innocent and wanted to set free. He sentenced Jesus to die a horrible death. And of course, it was the day of preparation of Passover. This detail was a mention to remind us again, this is all part of God's plan. Jesus would be the final unblemished Passover's lamb whose blood would bring atonement and forgiveness for all who believe in him. Also, Pilate sitting down on the judgment seat, is it's interesting to me. It does seem that Pilate, not Jesus, has the last word. However, there are many references to Jesus as the ultimate judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Acts 10, 42 through 43 says, 
And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this, Jesus, is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So that should be great news, right? Risen King Jesus has the final word, right? Hallelujah. All right, one more thing stood out to me in this section. The religious leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. And this verse to me is just heartbreaking. It's the Jewish leaders' final rejection of King Jesus. They claim to prefer Tiberius Caesar to Jesus. And history tells us that Tiberius was this dark, reclusive, and somber ruler who never really wanted to be emperor. Ultimately, we all have to decide if Jesus will be our king. Now, we live in a very anti-authoritarian culture where people don't want anyone to rule over them or tell them what to do. Or according to our culture, true freedom is to be your own master, right? The problem with that idea is this. It's not true. If we serve our worldly desires and just pursue those things that suit us, the Bible is clear where that leads. Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 8, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so this is our final point in God's justice plan, is that there are always harmful and natural consequences to our sin. Is Jesus your king? Are you submitting to his authority and walking in obedience to him? And in particular, are you submitting to his justice plan? Are you trying to work that out on your own? And are you developing patterns of sinful thought or behavior that currently seem to have no consequences? but will lead to destruction in the end. The beauty about submitting to Jesus is that he is not a distant, unloving, and withdrawn king like Tiberius. He's not a weak, power-hungry politician like Pilate. And he is not a legalistic, self-serving ruler like the religious leaders. He is the son of God, a wise and loving king who laid down his life for you. And guess what? He is working for your joy. At the beginning, I spoke about admiring people who willingly risk their lives to stop injustice and oppression. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did, but on the grandest scale ever. His death for the undeserving paid our debt and brought justice to all who believe in him. And I don't know about you, but that's the king I want to serve. Let's pray. Um, God, I thank you for the cough drop and for helping me finish out this, uh, what, you, what I think you put on my heart. God, and I pray that it would be impactful. I pray, God, it would cause us to worship and glorify you. I pray that it would cause us to uh, patiently endure those who are difficult in our lives. I pray, God, that we would entrust our hearts to you as we do endure injustice. And then I pray, the God, that we would join you in helping others who are oppressed or marginalized or not cared for. 
And that's a tall order, God. We cannot do that without your help and your spirit. And so we desperately ask, God, that you would help us. Help us to submit to your loving rule and recognize that your ways are always right and good. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.